Today's reading is taken from the book of Luke, reading from chapter 22, verse 63, to chapter 23, verse 25. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Thank you very much, Sheila, for reading for us. If you could please uh, keep those verses and look open in front of you. 
as we study them together, that will be extremely helpful for me and for all of us as we study them. Uh, Before I go any further, though, let me pray, and let me ask God for his help as we look at this together. Father, our prayer this morning is very simply that as we read your word, you would show us Christ, that you would show us his innocence, you would show us his authority, and you would help us to understand what he has done for us so that we may trust him, so that we may worship him, and so that we may follow him um, all the days of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin, let me take you back to the year 2016. I'm sitting on a sofa in Edinburgh, and I am completely aghast at what I am watching in front of me on television. The show in question is Making a Murderer, and if you've seen it, you'll know what an emotional roller coaster it is. If you haven't seen it, it's a documentary on an American chap named Stephen Avery. Now, this man, Stephen Avery, had originally been found guilty of murder and jailed accordingly, but around 10 years after, somebody confessed to the murder that the police thought Avery had committed. A DNA test subsequently exonerated him, and much to his delight, he was released from jail. Fast forward two years, Stephen Avery is suing the courts for wrongful arrest. He is suing the courts for wrongful imprisonment when he is arrested a second time. The charges are very, very similar to the first time around. The evidence is conveniently where it needs to be. And as you walk the documentary, those who have crafted the series want you to see that the authorities did not take kindly to being wrong the first time about Stephen Avery. They did not take too kindly to Stephen Avery's attempts to expose them, and they are determined to manipulate the legal process to make a murderer out of Stephen Avery, even if he hasn't done anything wrong. And I remember watching several episodes of the show and being utterly appalled at what I was witnessing. I remember thinking very clearly that something isn't right with the trial. Something isn't right with the decisions that are being made. They seem to be driven by things that aren't just the evidence. It seems more to be driven by pressure from on high pressure from everyday citizens, pressure to prove that this man really was a liar, a criminal, guilty. Despite Avery's innocence, the whole thing felt rigged. And as we turn to our section in Luke this morning, we have our very own making a, well, not a murderer, but making a criminal So far in Luke, we've seen Jesus arrive in Jerusalem, the headquarters of the religious authorities of the day. We've heard him question and counter all of the religious elite, all of their arguments. And they haven't taken too kindly to that at all. Jesus has silenced them. Now it's time for them to silence him. And Luke chapter 20 tells us that they seek to lay hands on Jesus. They seek to arrest him and much, much more besides. 
So one evening, Jesus is betrayed into the hands of the local authorities. He is betrayed into the hands of the religious elite of the day. He is completely abandoned by his followers. And now we arrive at the moment where Luke tells us about the trial against Jesus being thrown together. And as we study these verses together in Luke, we're supposed to react in a similar but much stronger way to how anybody would react if they were watching Making a Murderer. As we read these verses, we're supposed to be utterly aghast. We're supposed to be utterly appalled at what we witness. We're supposed to read these verses and conclude that something isn't right with the trial. The decision seems to be driven by pressure from on high, pressure from everyday citizens to prove that this man really was guilty, a criminal. A liar. And so as we see this trial together, we will notice that Luke wants us to be certain about three things which we'll see together. You should have been given a service sheet when you walked in. It will be in your Bible somewhere. And that just lists what we're looking at this morning as we look at these verses together. So the first thing for us to notice from these verses in Luke is that Jesus suffers total rejection from all sorts of people. Jesus suffers total rejection from all sorts of people. Now, we've been seeing throughout Luke that all sorts of people are welcome in Jesus' kingdom. Men and women, rich and poor, Jew and non-Jew alike, nobody is excluded from the offer of salvation and eternal life. And yet, tragically, here we see all sorts of people rejecting Jesus, men and women, rich and poor, Jew and non-Jew alike. And as Sheila read the verses out for us, you perhaps noticed four different groups that reject Jesus in these verses. The first group is the soldiers, either the soldiers of the religious authorities, the soldiers of King Herod. So in chapter 22, verse 63, we read, these men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who was it that struck you, Jesus? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And then you see very similar behavior with Herod's soldiers in verse 11 of chapter 23. Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt They mocked him, and then arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. Well, Jesus, if you really are the Christ, if you really are the rescuer king, if those prophecies and promises of yours are going to come true, then you should be able to tell who landed that punch, even through a blindfold, shouldn't you, Jesus? If you really are the Christ, if you really are the savior king of the Jews, then we should really give you the splendid clothing that befits a king. That's better, Jesus. There we go. And that sort, of, that sort of outright mockery, that sort of ridicule from the soldiers does feel uncomfortable for us to read. It feels hard for us to watch. But the soldiers just don't care. For them, it's one big joke. That's the first group. The second group is the religious leaders themselves. They intensify the campaign that they've begun against Jesus. It's no longer words to trap him. It's now words to terminate him. 
But however, under Roman rule, they realize that they have absolutely no authority of their own to execute Jesus. And so they take him to Pilate. We read that in verse 1 of chapter 23. The whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate, and they began to accuse him. They say, we found this man leading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, for those of us who have been going through Luke together, we know that's simply not true. We know that that is an outright lie. We might remember Jesus saying in chapter 20, no, render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God, render to God the things that are God's. Jesus is far more interested in whether we have given ourselves our worship to God. And so in order to attempt to find Jesus guilty, they have to lie. They have to severely manipulate and twist the words of Jesus. But it doesn't seem to be working. So they try again in verse 5. They were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, in one sense, that's true. Jesus has been teaching the people throughout these areas. But Jesus is definitely not in Jerusalem to stir people up against Pilate. He is definitely not in Jerusalem to stir people up against the Romans. If anything, he is stirring them up against the lies of the religious authorities. And because they cannot outsmart him, they will kill him. There is something deeply pathetic about the attempts here from the religious leaders. They come across as utterly exposed, utterly powerless, unable to get anything to stick to Jesus. And so the only thing they have left, the only thing they can do is to try and distort his words into making him sound like something that he is not, an anti-authoritarian teacher, or whatever it may be. That's the second group who oppose Jesus. The third group is the local authorities. So we have Pilate and Herod in our verses this morning. And when Pilate learns in verse 6 of chapter 23, when Pilate learns that Jesus is a Galilean, he is only too happy to ship Jesus over to Herod, hoping that Herod, who exercises jurisdiction over Galilee, well, this is, this is Herod's problem. Herod can sort this out. Why try and solve a conundrum like Jesus when you can delegate him on to someone else? And so Jesus is taken to Herod, who happens to be in Jerusalem at the time, and Herod, verse 8, we read, is very glad to see Jesus because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Ah, yeah, Jesus the magician. Yeah, I've heard lots about you. You do miracles, don't you? I've heard about those. I've heard about these signs. I'd love to see one. Go on. And the chief priests seem to have scurried along at Jesus' back on the way to see Herod. So verse 10, they're still vehemently accusing him in front of Herod. But all Herod wants to do is to play around with Jesus for a bit. He joins in with the mockery of the soldiers 
and then sends Jesus back to Pilate. Which brings us to Pilate himself. See, Pilate's reaction does initially seem different to the reaction of others, doesn't it? Perhaps even slightly more generous towards Jesus. And we'll see in a minute that Pilate cannot find any guilt in Jesus, but he is very, very happy to pass Jesus on to Herod and very, very happy to punish Jesus in spite of Jesus' innocence. So you see that in verse 16 of chapter 23. Pilate says, I will therefore punish and release him. It would be really, really strange of Pilate to punish Jesus if Pilate really is convinced that Jesus is the Savior King. It does seem instead like Pilate is driven by the crowds who are our fourth source of rejection. We hear them interact with one another in verse 18 of chapter 23. The chief priests, the rulers, all the people are gathered together. And they all cry out, away with this man, release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder. Eventually, in verse 23, their cries prevail. Their loud cries, their loud, urgent cries of crucify him prevail. And so Pilate decides that their demand should be granted. See, three times Pilate has the opportunity to side with Jesus, just like we saw with Peter last week. But ultimately, Pilate buckles under the pressure of the crowd, just like Peter did last week. His rejection of Jesus might be a bit less immediately hostile or immediately violent, but Pilate knowingly hands the Son of God over to his death. And those crowds, the same ones that had chanted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, they now chant for Jesus' death. As we sang earlier on, once these streets had sung to him, but now they cry for murder. Jesus suffers total rejection from all sorts of people. It is in many ways very similar, I think, to the way in which we see Jesus rejected today. As in the case of the soldiers, perhaps we see mockery, we see disdain, we see laughter at the prospect that Jesus really was the Messiah King sent to earth to save his people from sin and judgment. As in the case of the religious leaders, perhaps we see a rejection of Jesus' message. People don't like what Jesus says about our world, about our lives. And so they will gladly silence him, gladly silence his message. As in the case of Herod, perhaps we see a desire from somebody to see Jesus as, well, a person of interest, a curious man who did some curious things and had some interesting things to say. But ultimately, I'll have my own version of Jesus. Thank you very much. And I can either use him or discard him as I please. Or as in the case of Pilate, Perhaps it's an agreement that Jesus is a good man, maybe even an innocent man, but siding with him just seems far too costly. And so instead, I'll side with the crowd 
outside with what they say about Jesus, outside with what they do with Jesus. Regardless, ultimately, it comes down to a rejection of who he is and what he came to do. Luke wants us to know with certainty how utterly rejected Jesus is here, but also how united the forces are that oppose him. So you might have noticed in verse 12 of chapter 23 that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. Meanwhile, in verse 18, as we've seen already, the chief priests and the rulers and all the people cry together, away with this man. Everywhere Jesus looks around about him, his enemies unite against him. And if we were to dip back into our Old Testament, these events, as sad and as shocking as they are in one sense, should not come as a total surprise to us. In a very real and in a very sharp sense, we should read this chapter and be aghast and be appalled at the treatment of Jesus. But we shouldn't be all that shocked that these things are taking place. So we would read in Psalm 2 that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We read in Isaiah 53, as Jay read out for us earlier, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. And those are two very, very specific prophecies about what Jesus would endure in these verses. They're unfolding right in front of our eyes as we read Luke. And that gives us genuine cause for genuine gospel hope. We have not deviated from the gospel plan to rescue people from sin. Jesus' enemies might have planned that this would happen, but so has our Savior King. All of this is still a part of the plan revealed to us hundreds of years before Jesus stood before these crowds. He cries in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he will face all of this, but he still willingly submits to the plan of the Father to endure all of this to save us. All of this, all that we've looked at so far, is what Jesus was willing to go through, what Jesus was willing to suffer through for the sake of what he came to the earth to do. All of this is what Jesus was willing to go through to rescue his people and to take the praise and the glory that he is due for doing so. Doesn't that deepen our appreciation for what Jesus went through? Doesn't that grow a genuine gospel thankfulness that he did this for all of his people, including any of us in this room that trusts in him? Doesn't that deepen our hope and our trust in God's sovereignty that even when the rejection of Jesus looks as bleak as it does here, God is still in control. We have not deviated from the gospel plan. Jesus suffers total rejection from all sorts of people. That's the first thing Luke wants us to understand. The second thing for us to notice is the total innocence of Jesus throughout his mock trial. We'll cover this one much more quickly than point number one, but we must understand why Luke is showing us 
this, why Luke is showing us that Jesus is totally innocent throughout his trial. Jesus' perfect sinless life is something that we've already seen regularly throughout Luke, isn't it? So Jesus lives and speaks perfectly according to the perfect law of the Lord. And it's something that the forces that oppose him can't even refute as much as they try. And so it's no surprise then when Pilate says to the chief priests and to the crowd in verse 4 of chapter 23, I find no guilt in this man. And then again in verse 14, Pilate is addressing the crowds and he says, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And again, verse 22, Pilate says a third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. And it's telling that the crowd, the chief priests, the religious leaders, they cannot answer Pilate with anything that might condemn Jesus as guilty. All they can do is shout more loudly. And it's worth noticing as well that these individuals who declare Jesus' innocence in these chapters, they're not those inside Jesus' inner circle trying to put a particular spin on what we're reading. Even someone like Pilate, who's not a follower of Jesus, can see that he is innocent. Next week we'll hear from the soldier standing at Jesus' cross. He says in verse 47 of chapter 23, Surely, certainly, this man was innocent. It turns out that it's extremely hard to find a man guilty of misleading the crowds when in reality he is leading the crowds into the truth of who he is and the truth of the kingdom of God. It turns out it's extremely hard to find a man guilty of setting himself up as a false king when in reality he is the king, not only of the Jews but of the whole world. See, Luke wants us to know with certainty that Jesus is innocent of all charges. But Luke doesn't want us to conclude that Jesus is weak in these moments. So when Jesus is asked by the religious leaders in verse 67 of chapter 22, if you are the Christ, tell us. Read with me how he answers. If I tell you, he says to them, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And that serves as something of a summary of, of what we've seen so far in the interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders. You might remember in Luke chapter 20 that they ask Jesus, by what or by whose authority does he do the things that he does? And Jesus' response is to say, well, what do you make of John the Baptist and his ministry? Because if he's from God, as the crowds believe, I most certainly am to you. And you might remember that the religious leaders do not have an answer for Jesus. Jesus has already told them outright, and they won't believe. Jesus has asked them outright, and they won't answer. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of clarity. It's a stubborn refusal to bow the knee to Jesus, to his authority. But then listen to him in verse 69 of chapter 22. 
Jesus goes on to say, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. See, this is not the last time that Jesus and the religious leaders will appear in a courtroom. Some of us might remember from our Daniel series the prophecy that God's Messiah will be sat on a throne in judgment over the nations of the world. Jesus wants the religious leaders to be very clear that they might think at this moment that they have the upper hand. They might think that they have Jesus on the ropes. But Jesus' warning is very, very clear. It's very stark. This very same Jesus that you think you can judge is going to the right hand of God the Father to judge the world. So now imagine the perseverance it takes Jesus to say nothing when he stands in front of Pilate. His throne is so much higher than that of Pilate. His throne is so much higher than that of Herod. He knows he is innocent. He knows that his words of authority as the Son of God, as the Messiah, will silence his opponents. He knows that the truth of who he is and his innocence slices through the false accusations of the religious leaders. And so in order to go to the cross to die for you and for me, Jesus says, nothing. In that same Isaiah 53 passage, we read, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How silently he suffered that the guilty may go free. Jesus is innocent here, but his silence is not a silence of defeat. His silence is not a silence of weakness. His silence is to fulfill the prophecies made about him and to go to a Roman cross to die for our sins. And just before we move on to our last heading, Luke makes a big deal about Jesus' innocence here for, I think, two reasons. The first is that it validates everything that Jesus has said and done so far. So if Pilate were to find out that Jesus were guilty of something, then it would be hard to be certain about Jesus' identity or about the truth of what Jesus has claimed. It would be hard to be certain about his words, his mission, his offer of eternal life. It would be hard to trust him. It would be hard to know with certainty that he really has come to rescue us. But Jesus' innocence means that he has shared nothing with us apart from the truth of who he is, why he came, and what his kingdom is like. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, it means that he dies, Jesus dies, as an innocent, righteous man on the cross, meaning he can make an offering for the sin of his people. So again, in Isaiah 53, we read these words, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. He shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, Jesus has to die as an innocent man so that he can swap our sinfulness with his 
innocence. Jesus has to die as an innocent man so he can swap our guilt with his righteousness. And so we are as forgiven as Jesus is innocent. And so as we understand Jesus to be totally innocent of all charges, the perfect sinless lamb, we understand that that is how God looks upon his people now. Because of Jesus' innocence, those who trust in Jesus, you and me as we sit here this morning, we are accounted righteous because Jesus bears our iniquities on the cross. Luke wants us to be certain that Jesus is innocent because he wants us to be certain that as we'll sing in a moment, our debts are paid, they are paid in full by the precious blood that our Jesus spills. Luke wants us to be certain that Jesus is innocent because he wants everyday Christians like you, like me, to know that we have this righteousness accounted to us, credited to us, because of Jesus' death, our innocent Jesus' death on the cross in our place. Which leads us on to the third and final thing we'll look at this morning. Jesus suffers total rejection from all sorts of people. Jesus maintains total innocence throughout his mock trial. And then lastly, Jesus offers total exchange that the guilty may go free. Jesus offers total exchange that the guilty may go free. We read in verse 18 of chapter 23, the crowd shouts, release to us Barabbas. And Barabbas is an especially terrifying sort of human being. He's the sort of person that we would cross the street, turn around, and head down a different road to avoid if we were walking down the road one day and saw him. He is someone who has started an insurrection, most likely against Pilate himself, in the city of Jerusalem. He is someone who has actually committed murder. He is not the some, he's not someone who Pilate wants loose around the streets of Jerusalem again. And yet Pilate is so crippled by the voices of the people, in verse 24, that Pilate demands, decides rather, that their demand should be granted. And so then Luke leaves us with a very loaded sentence at the end of our section this morning in verse 25, which only really makes sense if we've understood everything that we've seen so far this morning. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus, innocent Jesus, over to their will. At one level, it's a complete injustice. And yet, in God's sovereign power, it's the best news that any guilty man or woman could ever hear. Barabbas, the guilty one, someone who belongs in a maximum security prison for a long, long time, goes free. Jesus, the innocent Messiah King, takes his place. Jesus is falsely accused by the religious leaders of stirring up the people against Pilate. Barabbas, who has actually done that very thing, is not punished. He's released to go free. It's as if Barabbas' charges are transferred onto Christ. And the total exchange here 
is a physical demonstration of what is taking place spiritually at the cross. Barabbas was totally helpless, totally guilty, but Jesus is the one who steps into his place, steps into the place of the guilty, dies for the guilty so that the guilty may walk free. It is the only way that Barabbas could have ever been rescued. Barabbas is in no position to bargain with the authorities here. Barabbas does not earn his release. Barabbas does not contribute towards his release at all. Barabbas is guilty, as are we. We do not contribute anything towards our release. We do not earn it. We are in no position to bargain. All we can do is be rescued from judgment by Jesus, who takes our place. Everything that we are charged with, everything that makes us guilty before God, is transferred onto Jesus as he goes to the cross. And Luke wants us to be certain that Jesus has lived a perfect life. He has endured the cruelty of mockery and crucifixion. And he goes to the cross as an innocent man so that we don't have to. So that we might walk free, walk away from judgment and condemnation, just as Barabbas did. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, that jail door is open. Push it. Enjoy the freedom from sin. Enjoy the freedom from judgment that comes with Christ. You and I are righteous before God, thanks to Jesus. None of this has caught the Lord off guard. Jesus has been numbered amongst the transgressors, meaning that you and I do not need to be. So flood your thoughts with thankfulness for what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus has done for me. Know with certainty that Jesus' death is our salvation and that his innocent life irreversibly guarantees our righteousness before the God who made us and rescues us. Let me pray as we close. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his innocence. We thank you for his sinlessness. We thank you for his suffering. And we thank you, Father, for his substitutionary death in our place. Father, please help us to know with certainty that Jesus was innocent. Help us to know with certainty that we are righteous if we trust in you. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place. Thank you for taking what we deserve so that we may go free. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.